Denver has an air pollution problem, and the world has a climate change problem. All those fancy RTD trains should help fix that, right? If we really want to see a better city, a better world, we have to change. I'm Nathaniel Miner, host of CPR's podcast, Ghost Train. In this show, I take a deep look at how transit could fix big issues our cities are facing, if we let it. Follow Ghost Train wherever you get your podcasts. A quick note just before we start. This episode contains content and language that might not be suitable for everyone. Listener's discretion is advised. A demonstration against police brutality ends in another act of excessive force. Body cam- Public distrust of police is not new in many communities of color. In Louisville, a black restaurant owner was shot and killed by police when they returned fire on protesters. But a recent Gallup poll shows that confidence in the police has declined in white communities. I'm talking to you, white person to white person now, okay? Because we need to do better and you need to do better. Right now, trust in the police is at an all-time low. Understand the way that the system has tainted you. That's right. Understand that. I think it's very, very clear that many people do not trust the police. So what needs to change? And how can trust be regained in especially black communities? Even if you think the arrest is unlawful, you do not have the right to resist. I tell my son, hey, Comply, get handcuffed, go to the precinct, do what the officers say, we'll deal with the rest at home. Corvella Spurl is the first black appointed director of police and public safety for Franklin Township, New Jersey. It's her job to make her community safe, but can she really change police culture so that she can win back trust in the African-American community? It's a big ask. Don't think at that moment, panic, you got to fight, you got to run, and you got to get out of this situation because my mom is going to kill me. Don't think about that. Just get home safe. And that's for everyone. I'm Joe Erickson, and this is Systemic, a podcast series that tells the stories of those who fight injustice as they attempt to dismantle the status quo. This time, we look at how an African-American director of police is rethinking law enforcement. Part 3. Hard Truths The members of the Franklin Township Police Department take this responsibility seriously. Officers, I will ask that you repeat after me. On my honor, I will never betray my badge, my integrity, my character. It's June 2020. Quivella Spurl is issuing the affirmation of oath to her officers. Congratulations. Once again, we have renewed the oath of honor that we promised that very first day. As the world reacts to the killing of George Floyd, 
she decides to take on a new challenge in a new police department in a new town. As Director of Police and Public Safety in Franklin Township, New Jersey, she's breaking new ground. Not only is she the first black person in this position, she's also the first woman. Franklin Township is a small town. A quarter of its residents are from the African-American community and white residents make up less than half the population. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to say thank you to all of you who are here supporting us today. The major part of this is the community. We cannot do this without you. And that is why... Spurl, a Newark native, is accustomed to the accolade. She became the first African-American woman to hold a position of chief of detectives at the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. And she set her sights higher. She oversees a 100-member police force that had been plagued with controversy in recent years. In 2016, there was a scandal where white officers abused pay time off. One officer raked up 229 days over three years. In another incident, an on-duty officer overdosed on heroin in his patrol vehicle, and the department was facing criticism over racial discrimination in promoting officers. With all this in mind, Corvella faced a huge challenge to change the perception of policing. Her top priority is to restore Franklin Township Police Department's credibility and making sure police officers' actions are more transparent and accountable. That's the only way she feels she can win back trust with a large African-American community. Only days into her new job, she takes on the anger of Blue Lives Matter. This group turned up at a Black Lives Matter protest and held a counter rally. God bless the police, you dumbass protesters. The two rallies weren't the only things she had to deal with. Some of her white officers at Franklin Township Police Department took issue with a black colleague marching with Black Lives Matter protesters. You know, protests and rallies popped up all over the place in our town. And the first one that we had, you know, of course I was there. I'm the new police director. I have to be present. And one of our officers, he's from town. His dad is from, you know, from town. He's a retired law enforcement officer. And the dad, my officer, and my officer's son walked in the Black Lives Matter march. And, I mean, it was peaceful. And, and it was diverse, too. Let's start with that. I mean, it was very diverse. One of the officers took a picture of our officer, and they were kind of spreading it around, like making comments about him being a part of it.
They sent it around like, oh yeah, right, Black Lives Matter now, or something, something to that effect. Like, oh, you're you're black, you're not blue. Like, you know, it was a subtle bully. It was. It was. It was. They were trying to make him feel ashamed for, you know, participating. So we had a meeting in the courtroom. And I said to them, I said, I know how officers and I know how boys behave, but you are grown men, you are police officers, you are professionals, and I'm gonna tell you right now, I will not have it. Knock it off right now. I don't like it, I don't like the undertone, I don't like the overtone, and I will not stand for it, and people will be punished for it. So you know what I did after that happened? Every single rally protest that they did, I had some officers, of course we were working for the safety of the crowd, but I had some officer participate in it. Quirella made her uniformed white officers join the Black Lives Matter rallies, where she encouraged them to mingle and talk to the protesters so they can develop relationships with the community and people of color. But for Quavella, it's not about sides. It's about being a part of a community that's hurting right now and recognizing that everyone is struggling to cope with yet another black man's death. It's late. Quavella sits up in bed. She can't sleep. She keeps replaying the day over and over in her mind. So she reaches for her recorder. So one of the things that came up this week was, so the prosecutor's office paid to get our car wrapped um, in pink for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And my officer in charge tells me that after we do a press release, press conference at this, you know, county courthouse, historic courthouse, that they wanted us to take our pink truck to the Trump National Golf Course in Bedminster and take a picture so that they could send it to the White House. I can't do that. So I called the county chief and I said, listen, you know, I don't think I can do that. It wouldn't be appropriate. So he tells me, He's not going to play politics. They're going there because X number of donations you know, are made. I said, well, I'm not playing politics either. I just don't want anything to do with it. So I think he feels a certain kind of way. And there's always some noise. You know, I try to drown out the noise, but there's always some noise. So, okay, I will talk to you later. As Director of Police and Public Safety, Quivella is responsible for the entire police department, including overseeing the chief of police and officers. Many of her peers believe she has risen up the ranks too quickly, bypassing the chief of police and jumping straight to the top. She hasn't won them over now, but give her time. 
when we're here and we're talking to you, we're meeting with you, it's not just about policing. It's creating a relationship and maintaining that relationship. I think the public needs to be educated, and I think the law enforcement executives need to be educated. Thank you. Just thank you, Q. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on the, on the questions? No, I think she covered it quite well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, the next question actually... Quivella spent her day talking to tons of people. Her officers, the chief of police, community groups, government agencies like social workers, trying to figure out the best way to use her officers, which means she can work long hours. As a mum of two teenage kids, she still has to fit in all the things a parent does around a busy police schedule. But why would you have a conversation with me when you know I'm exhausted? You were going back and forth. You weren't just listening. You were talking. You were not asleep. <laughs> no matter what's going on at home, she has to be ready to respond to crisis at any time. After a crazy day in the office, she has to attend a parent-teacher conference call. So yesterday was, you know, another long day. I was wrapping up things and it was late. And I was like, okay, I'll stay here and do the kids' parent-teacher conferences. So one of her teachers goes, oh, you're in Franklin. I was like, yeah, you know, Franklin. She said, oh, I'm in South Brook. That's right next door. I said, oh, okay. And so she's like, yeah, one of your cops gave me a ticket. <laughs> so she described it. I was like, oh, I know who it is. Okay. And so when I got home, my daughter was like, oh, what did my teacher say? I said, oh, you're great. You know, you're doing good. So she said, what did you guys talk about? And I said, oh, she was talking about her son. It's not. I was like, oh, yeah, she talked about one of my cops gave her a ticket. So my daughter's like, oh, what? I was like, I know. She goes, see, mommy, that's why I wanted you home to do your conference. Because if you weren't at work, she would have never known where you worked and she wouldn't have put two and two together. I said, you knew she got a ticket? She goes, no, but it's always got to turn to that job. Poor thing. And she closed the door and left the room. I did apologize. She was like, oh. <laughs> The New Jersey Senate's Law and Public Safety Committee advanced a number of police reform bills, including one to increase recruitment of minority men and women. But Democrats differ. In the summer of 2020, New Jersey legislators started advancing ways to reform the look of the state's police forces. Now, in October 2020, Quivella is aiming to implement those ideas. This week, she'll start transforming a mostly white male police department into something that more closely represents the people she serves. Six officers, who are all black, will soon be sworn in. But tonight, she's thinking about how her changes will be perceived. It's 1am. She and her husband are both still awake as she picks up the recorder. Oh, um, new hires came. Uh, we have six new hires this week and then two more in two weeks. So the first six new hires all African-American, all... Um, experienced police officers. 
two females, four males. So their first day, I felt compelled to address the elephant in the room and tell them that I did not hire them because they were black. Because I know in that department where the majority officers are white, they're going to see them, see me, and assume that. So I let them know from the door that that is not why I hired them. I hired them because they were the best of the best. And I think it's important to say that to them because they are definitely going to change <laughs> the dynamics around a department in terms of diversity and definitely inclusion. So I'm praying that, you know, uh, they are accepted um, and do not experience too many trials and tribulations by being different than the rest. So in general, it's a great thing. I feel good about it. It's just a little bitty, little bitty scary, but it is what it is. There's a national conversation on how we change policing so that communities of colour can start rebuilding trust with their local police. Many people put forward the idea that more black officers is the answer. So I'm looking at the total picture. It's not just about having more black officers because, listen, I'm black and I'll tell you this, not all black people are fit to be police officers. So you can't just say, you know, more black officers will fix this problem, but more diversity totally can fix this problem because you'll have a diverse group of people that know how to deal with a diverse community. And I think the key is also having people not just directly from the community, but that is used to relating to different people within the community. I mean, some officers are fortunate enough to have grown up in the environment where they're, you know, exposed to different people. The officers who we do hire, they could be very good officers, just not used to certain things. We have to train them and embed them in our community and train them properly. So I don't think just adding more Black officers is the key. It's part of it because you should have a department that reflects the entire community. In the months leading up to the trial of Derek Chauvin, law enforcement across the country is under media and public scrutiny. This is a difficult time to be an officer. But Corvella doesn't think these pressures are the only reasons why. When no one else can help, we call the police. Officers spend their time responding to pressing crises, overdoses, homelessness and mental health emergencies, to name a few. At the same time, national police data show that about 1% of 911 calls are for serious violent crimes. So, are we asking police to do too much? Yes. <laughs> it's too much. It's a lot. First of all, who responds 24-7? The police, fire, EMS. Those are the three entities that are available. And citizens think that the police can solve 
everything. If someone calls 911, no matter what it is, we respond to it. It is a lot. Police have become social services. So police have responded to issues where, you know, children have not eaten. We go. Yes, that's a call that we then have to make to social services. But guess who's there first? Guess who's there to take the child, help the child, help the the parents, help the home? It's the police. So it is a burden in a sense, but guess what? It is our job. We're here to serve and protect. Part of that service is to respond to whatever we're called to respond. And it becomes a lot. Police do not have the option to say, oh, you called 911? That's not us. We have to go and check it out. (laughs) We usually get there first. We start CPR first. We take that very serious. We stop the bleeding first, you know. There, these are all the things that the police officers have to do. And we never say no, because we have to go. And breaking news tonight, the deadly siege on Congress as an angry pro-Trump mob storms the U.S. US Capitol. Breaking windows, pushing through police with shots fired inside as lawmakers were gathered to count the votes confirming President-elect Biden won the election. It's January 6, 2021. The world watched as the U.S. Capitol Police failed to contain the protest. Uh, there are people who have made their way into the building itself. Now, in this environment, Chad can tell you... Looking back at events, Quivella was left scratching her head at the double standards of policing. She couldn't believe what she was seeing. So the interesting part about the riot at the Capitol building is that the law enforcement there, I, I blame it on the leadership. You know, people want to criticize the officers and, you know, what they did or did not do. I I really don't know enough to say one way or the other. I just know the optics that the media portrayed, you know, portrayed them as being very passive. And then you see the media portraying law enforcement during the Black Lives Matter protests as being very aggressive, very proactive, very prepared. So what was the difference? Uh, The difference can be attributed to race. I think it's a misconception that Black people can be more violent. And this has been a stigma throughout our history, regardless of what type of individuals. Um, You know, we are stereotyped by the way you know, our hair, our we dress, our skin color. So, yeah, I think it's outright displays what our country believes that, you know, they have to be more prepared, tactically prepared for us versus other groups. And I think this was an illustration that, guess what? We're not the most violent. We're not the most likely to have civil unrest. The world is watching, so I just hope we can recover from this. We have some time to go to some questions from the audience. 
Do we have any questions, Paula? We sure do. My my private chat is on is on fire. So uh, <laughs> it's February, and Covella is at a virtual community meeting. She meets up with the community every month to talk about issues. This time, it's about public safety. On the call, there are several black community leaders, organizers, and church leaders. And the issue of defund the police was raised. I'm not saying in theory, you know, some people say, oh, defund the police, eliminate police. You'll never eliminate police because you're always going to need someone to respond for certain types of emergencies and things that happen. But increase social services, absolutely. And if a byproduct of that is to reduce the number of cops that are needed, so be it. COVID-19 has affected the way that everyone works, and the police are not exempt. Everything is done by Zoom. Even a regular meeting with the chief of police and other city council members over operations and community relations. This time, they're debating something called enhanced mechanical force. And, and the reason for elevating it to enhanced mechanical force is because... In normal language... It's a term used to describe a non-life-threatening situation that doesn't require deadly force. So, the use of pepper sprays and tasers. But when the use of dogs came up, Quivella needed to remind her white colleagues about their history in the black community. In regard to the canine policy, I believe in dogs for specific uses. A rapist, homicide, or other violent suspect hiding in the woods, you know, it would be appropriate to send in a canine. Um, some dog lovers would disagree, saying that we are endangering dogs by doing this as well. So there's different perspectives that we have to look at. But we need canines for drugs, guns, bombs, search, rescue, cadavers, etc. But, you know, the question becomes... Why would you use dogs at a peaceful demonstration to intimidate citizens? I don't think that's an appropriate use. You know, the history of dogs go back to slavery. Dogs were used to kill disobedient slaves. So we have to be very careful about how we use dogs and how they're symbolized with police, especially now with everything that's going on within our communities and law enforcement. This is an ABC News Live special report. Breaking news. We've just learned the jury has reached a verdict in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin charged in the death of George Floyd. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. An unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. It's April 21st, on the day that the court found Derek Chauvin guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter for the death of George Floyd. Crivella was preparing for the worst. It was a relief. I was hoping for guilty, but preparing for, you know, whichever way it would go. And, um, like I said, relieved that the jury convicted this former police officer 
but the scary part of a not guilty not not so much that there would have been protests and more backlash against the police and oh god possible riots in other country but a not guilty would have meant that our system is broken you know something happens in plain view on video to the world and we're not cognizant of the fact that this man was guilty I mean his own police chief stood there and said he was you know not in line with the policies of the agency but a lot of us look back and say why was he still there with all the complaints and interactions that he had that were negative within that department for so long why was he still there why was that chief allowing him to still be there why wasn't that chief aware that he was there which tells me a deeper picture I hate to say within police departments is that I'm sure Derek Chauvin is not the only one with a record like that and who is still working. A reminder to all police executives that you have to ensure that you do your job as a supervisor, as an executive, to make sure officers like this do not exist within your department because as you can see, it only takes one. It didn't take a whole crew of police officers like Derek Chauvin, it took one to damage the reputation of police officers, not just in that state, but throughout our nation. We're all looked at differently because of that one. In the days after the verdict, Corella had to process what this moment represented in policing. Looking forward, what are the lessons from the Chauvin trial? One of the things that we have to keep in mind is that there has to be consistency in the way law enforcement agencies are run. People say law enforcement is broken. We need to reimagine it. No, we need to go back to the basics of policing and remember what we are here for. There's only one reason we're here. We're not here to damage the public or, you know, take away someone's dignity or, you know, or, or just blatantly murder someone. We're given the right to, but it's supposed to be in the line of protecting your life or someone else's life. So we have to go back to basics. We have to remember why we were here in the first place, and we have to be consistent throughout every law enforcement agency in terms of transparency and accountability and supervision and monitoring We have to keep that in mind. There's lawless police officers out there. But guess what? For the most part, police officers follow the rules that are given. And if the rules are not in place, what are they following? What are they allowed to do? So I think it's incumbent upon the federal government, state governments, to ensure that policing throughout the nation is done consistently. And it saddens me to see this type of interaction with our citizens because I know it can be done differently. I've seen it done differently. You don't have to drag people out of the cars. I know they're supposed to comply. They're supposed to listen, but there's a certain amount of dialogue where you can resolve things. Take your time, get it done nicely, respectfully. It may take a little more time, 
but guaranteed it's less use of force, less of a chance of there being an interaction where there is an escalation, where there is a, a police officer harmed or a citizen harmed. It's a hard place to be right now. Quivella wants law enforcement to uphold good standards of policing around the country, and she thinks that starts with training. In Germany and Sweden, for example, police recruits are required to spend two and a half to four years in training to become an officer, whereas most US police cadets will undergo an average of five months of academy training. Quivella shares her thoughts on what training should look like. I would change training in a way where training for policing would begin somewhere around 10th, 11th grade in high school. I know some people would look at that as, you know, almost like uh, the military training academy, but that is where I would begin the training. Policing and training should almost be a college degree paid for by the government. If you want to be a police officer, I think the training should begin in college in that sort of setting, but it should be paid for by the government. You know, we should start selecting people locally. And I think that is how we would grow and get a diverse population of students to go into the field of law enforcement. I think you get them young and you train them the way they should be trained to be the officers that we want to reflect our communities. It's the only way to go because you think about it, by the time most officers come into law enforcement in their mid to late 20s, early 30s, they're already programmed. They've watched enough TV, they've talked to enough officers, good and bad, to develop their own thinking of what they think policing should be. I think if we get them early, early, late high school years, early college years, and we train them and we put them in a setting where they're going to learn the laws, they're going to know the constitution, they're going to know civics, they're going to learn everything there is to make them that whole police officer. Now more than ever, Quivella sees that it's critical law enforcement re-examine the process of training and hiring new officers. Though this would be a radical change and possibly change police culture, there's still a long way to go. So how did Quivella do in her first year on the job? She's increased the amount of black officers to now account for 23% of her department. But it's too early to tell how her efforts on diversity are affecting crime in the area. Franklin Township Police Department's annual report shows crime stats have remained steady since she took the job, even with a 15% increase in calls for service in 2020. Yet, one of the biggest tests for Covella's vision of policing may be playing out right now. The New Jersey Attorney General has released dash cam video from a deadly police shooting in Buena Vista Township and shows Roy Jackal of Wildwood Crest stealing a Franklin Township police vehicle. And this happened after a crash. In April 2021, 
a Franklin Township police officer fatally shot a white man who stole a police car and ran towards the police with one hand behind his back. The case is currently being reviewed by the state attorney general's office. Gravella was critical of the Minneapolis police in the Chauvin case. But will she need to make tough decisions within her own department if there's evidence of a police officer's wrongdoing? In our final episode, we follow an activist who sees the need for more immediate changes to policing. We have some of the highest racial disparities in the country across every key indicator of quality of life, including contact with police, high rates of criminalization, high unemployment rates, high rates of violence in some of our most vulnerable communities. And these city council members have done literally nothing to address these issues. Next time on Systemic. Hey, it's Joe. Since you listened to the whole episode, I have a quick favour to ask you. Take a moment to find Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on whatever podcast app you use and give us a like, a rating or a review. If you think the stories we're sharing are important, if you think the voices in Systemic deserve to be heard, all you have to do to help spread the word is like us, rate us or review us. It helps others find this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio.